Before we get started, a friendly reminder that if you like this podcast, please go join patreon.com slash antisocial studies. You'll get bonus episodes. I talk about current events. Sometimes I do book clubs and book discussions and even live virtual learning events. There are a few coming up, for example, about women in European history and the Ottoman Empire. If you're already a member of Patreon or you can't join right now, then please at least share this podcast with anyone else you think would like it and go like, subscribe, and rate it wherever you're getting your podcasts. All of it helps. Thanks. Never have I felt older than this moment right now in which I'm lecturing via podcast about the historical era that was the 1990s, or as the kids refer to it, the late 1900s. When I was starting to study history in college in the first decade of the 21st century, professors proclaimed that the 1990s were still much too recent to really figure them out. Like historians typically need to be removed at least 20 years before they can begin to form a narrative around what a time period means historically. Well, friends, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but 1990 was over 30 years ago. It is officially a topic of history rather than current events. And nothing convinced me of this more than when just a few weeks ago, they released a series of historic American Girl dolls from the 1990s, complete with a small purple inflatable chair that is an exact replica of a very cool piece of furniture I definitely had in my bedroom. Ooh, that one hurt. I like to teach my students about the post-World War II decades in U.S. history through television. The 1950s, we watch and discuss I Love Lucy. The 1960s, The Munsters. The 1970s, All in the Family. The 1980s, honestly, used to be The Cosby Show. I don't know anymore. So what were the 1990s all about? It was confusing. We didn't have a clear enemy in the world anymore. The internet boom kind of glossed over rising inequality. The world became globalized and the country became obsessed with talking about multiculturalism and whether that was a good or bad thing. The 1990s are like a hodgepodge of developments that will become more important as origin stories for 21st century developments. It was a decade full of stories, but also kind of about nothing. So today we're talking about the 1990s, or the Seinfeld decade. I'm Emily Glenkler. This is Antisocial Studies. Settle in and let's go back in time. Act 1, A Globalizing World. The buzzword that really defined the decade was globalization. Technological improvements for transportation and communication, coupled with increasing immigration into the West, it seemed like the U.S. was suddenly getting more diverse by the day. Everyone and their mom was talking about the changing, globalizing world. Scholars like Thomas Friedman have made a living publishing books like The Lexus and the Olive Tree and The World is Flat to try to make sense of a world basically without a single dominant culture. It's funny because, of course, this was not a new development, right? Migrations, cultural diffusion, exchange, these are as old as history. What was different is that Western, read white, civilizations were not in control of the cultural exchange in the way they used to be. By the 90s, the formal age of imperialism was clearly over. Although, of course, there are still pockets directly under the control of a far-off mother country, and the impacts of imperialism are still being felt today. 
Whereas for most of the 20th century, cultural diffusion had been a one-way street. White Western culture and philosophy was spread throughout the world via trade, political influence, and straight-up conquest. But now, with the collapse of the Soviet Union and a weakened Europe, historically colonized people were more freely able to express their culture and potentially using new technology, spread it around the globe at the same time that McDonald's and blue jeans were invading their cities. And depending on who you were, this was either an amazing development or terrifying evidence of the decline of, quote, American values. Immigration to the United States had been increasing, especially from non-European countries, since the Immigration Act of 1965 eliminated the problematic quota system from the 1920s. And then the Refugee Act of 1980 made it easier for people to leave their country and enter the U.S. due to, quote, well-founded fear of persecution on account of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular group or personal opinion. Because of this, we started to have increasing immigration from Latin America, notably fleeing violence in countries that had been destabilized thanks to our Cold War interventions. This also meant that more migrants were entering the country over land by crossing the southern border. It's a little bit harder to control than immigrants coming on ships via ports of entry, for example. And due partly to this logistical change and partly to racist ideas about what types of people deserve to come to the U.S., the government in the 90s became increasingly concerned with immigration as a political issue. And it should be noted that even under Reagan in the 1980s, immigration was still seen as a fairly bipartisan issue that reflected the greatness of our country since so many people wanted to come here. Reagan himself called immigration, quote, one of the most important sources of America's greatness. Although he also passed the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986 that penalized employers who hired illegal immigrants and strengthened border controls. But I mean, it also granted amnesty to any undocumented person who could prove they'd entered the country before 1982. Reagan's confusing, y'all. Throughout the 1990s, immigration became an increasingly polarizing political issue. By 2001, the top five sources for legal immigrants were Mexico, India, China, the Philippines, and Vietnam. The discussion around illegals and aliens versus undocumented and migrants became the new code for political debates around diversity and non-whiteness in the U.S., in 1996, Congress passed the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act that put restrictions on who families could sponsor as immigrants. For example, they had to be above the poverty line. It toughened penalties for smuggling people across the border, made it easier to deport undocumented people, and began to build a 14-mile fence along the border below San Diego. It's interesting to note that this is really the first attempt to physically block off the southern border. Like, sure, there had been some chain-link fences starting in the 1940s, but for the most part, nothing that would look like a secure border to us now. Whatever you think about the wall and securing our borders, I think it's important to remember how recent a lot of these developments are and how long we existed as a country without them. Of course, funding for security and border control is going to skyrocket after September 11th. The USA Patriot Act is going to triple the number of immigration officials at the border, but more on that next episode. Okay, so it appears by the 90s that the culture of the United States is dramatically changing and diversifying. And then there's also technological change. Now, like... I don't think I need to explain how much the computer and internet changed society, right? Like, we lived it. I mean, I guess unless you're a Gen Z, Gen Alpha listener, in which case, welcome, fellow young person. But then again, now that we're learning about developments that we're still living through, it can be helpful to look back with a historical lens to understand how our personal experiences, i.e. selling Beanie Babies on eBay, fit into the larger narrative. 
First, just some basic chronology. Apple Computer was founded in 1976 during the glorious Gerald Ford administration. The first home computer, the Apple II, was released in 1977. By 1981, IBM introduced the PC, and by 1985, Microsoft had created the Windows operating system for the PC. But still, throughout the 1980s and early 90s, a home computer was like a strange luxury. In 1990, only 15% of households owned a computer, and like, they were kind of useless. That's not entirely true. A home computer could do some simple operations. You could type on a word processor. And like nerds in basements and garages around the country are going to discover tons of uses for early computers. But for the average person, it was just like a huge expensive calculator and typewriter in one. And this changed, of course, with the rise of the internet. The U.S. Defense Department began developing a system that could network computers, but it's not until 1990 that we have the first real iteration of the World Wide Web. For young people, that's what WWW stands for. Tim Berners-Lee, while working at CERN in Switzerland, created a system of links that could be accessed through software that would allow users to post information and navigate between sites. And now, for a quick tangent about Al Gore. I've heard my entire life the claim, always made jokingly, that Al Gore invented the internet. It was often used as shorthand to discredit Clinton's vice president and the Democratic nominee in the highly contentious 2000 election. It honestly wasn't until right now, as I'm doing research for this episode, that I actually looked into where this story started, and all I have to say is, we as a country have done Al Gore wrong. Okay, so the source of the confusion, did Al Gore invent the internet, was in a 1999 interview on CNN's Late Edition with Wolf Blitzer, explaining why he would be the best nominee for the Democratic Party in the upcoming 2000 election, Al Gore said, quote, During my service in the United States Congress, I took the initiative in creating the internet. I took the initiative in moving forward a whole range of initiatives that have proven to be important to our country's economic growth and environmental protection, improvements in our educational system. He goes on. Taken out of context, the quote, I took the initiative in creating the internet spread like wildfire, ironically helped along by the new, you know, internet. It morphed into simply, I invented the internet, and it removed all context and nuance into just soundbite fodder for late night talk shows. Honestly, considering this quote and then the online mistreatment of Monica Lewinsky, which we'll talk about later in the episode, considering these are two of the earliest internet controversies of the late 1990s, this really should have been a warning to us of like the road that this new technology was going to take us all down, but I digress. So did Al Gore invent the internet? No. And he never claimed to, but as a senator and then vice president, Al Gore did more to bring the internet into reality than any other elected official over the course of 30 years. All the way back in the 1970s, Gore was involved with computers. He was described as having a, quote, geek reputation running back to his days as a futurist Atari Democrat in the House. Even before most people understood what a computer was, Al Gore was already thinking about artificial intelligence and fiber optic networks as colleagues fell asleep out of boredom. As the early forms of what would become the internet slowly became a reality in the 1980s, Gore was a leader in Congress arguing for the U.S. to be on the front lines of this new technology. That's what he meant when he said, I took the initiative in creating the internet. 
After a 1988 hearing by UCLA computer scientist Leonard Kleinrock, Al Gore began crafting the High Performance Computing and Communication Act. Passed in 1991, this built on Kleinrock's ARPANET, which was the predecessor to the modern internet, and it allocated $600 million for the creation of a national information infrastructure, or as Gore called it, the Information Superhighway. This also led to the creation of a web browser known as Mosaic that is credited as beginning the internet boom of the 1990s. Now, I can't get into the nuanced differences between ARPANET, Mosaic, and Tim Berners-Lee's World Wide Web because, like, have you met me? But the point is that we needed all of these developments to get the internet as we know it today. No one person invented the entire internet, but Berners-Lee did create the most user-friendly way to explore the web, made possible partly thanks to government funding headed by U.S. Congressman Al Gore. All right, we're going to come back to Al Gore and whether it's the 2000 presidential election, his groundbreaking documentary and inconvenient truth, or his contributions to the rise of the internet, I say it again, we did Al Gore wrong. He deserved better. All right, the 1990s saw an e-commerce boom that ended up being the longest period of economic expansion in American history. Honestly, I think this is one of the reasons why Reagan's legacy was so mythologized so quickly. The internet boom and upcoming bubble masked a lot of the inequality and seemed to prove his trickle-down policy effective thanks to a totally unrelated technological development. Why am I saying this? I got myself out of the Reagan episode without any trouble. Like, why am I poking the bear? It's important to note that this massive economic expansion was unequal. Access to global manufacturing led to a race to the bottom as companies tried to find the cheapest place to manufacture their goods, often ending up in Mexico, then China, Vietnam, and Bangladesh. And so another trend of the 1990s was the creation of economic free trade blocks that would allow money and goods to flow more quickly and freely. In 1995, the World Trade Organization was created to reduce barriers to international trade among its 120 member nations. Two years earlier, in 1993, both the European Union and NAFTA were formed. Our North American Free Trade Agreement connected the economies of the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, allowing companies, capital, and trade to cross borders more easily. But wait, didn't we just talk about how we were also cracking down on immigration, especially along the southern border? Well spotted, listener. Bonus points to you. The problem with a system like NAFTA is that it allowed everything to move more freely across borders, except people. As the race to the bottom lowered wages for blue-collar jobs and just put local businesses, especially in Mexico, out of commission, we actually incentivized workers from Mexico to cross the border, exactly at the moment we were also making it harder to do so legally. Now, I'll pause. I have to own my bias here. Like, as an undergrad at UNC Chapel Hill, my primary major was international studies focusing on modern Latin America. And I was there learning about NAFTA about 15 years after its implementation, just enough time to gather evidence of its success or failure. Needless to say, my college education was kind of one-sided. Like, Latin American experts are not a fan. They see NAFTA as another example of the U.S., the bully of the North, just seeing Mexico as its backyard, at its disposal for cheap labor and tax breaks, without offering anything significant in return. That rant was for you, Dr. Gaffney. So while the economy, thanks to the internet and deregulation, boomed, inequality reached levels we haven't seen since the Gilded Age. Adjusted for inflation, wages haven't really increased for non-supervisory workers since the 1970s. And in fact, the average income for the poorest one-fifth of Americans fell by 12% during the decade. The poor were getting poorer. 
Globalization brought new opportunities for American businesses. They could sell their goods abroad more easily, and consumers could import cheaper options from abroad. But of course, jobs could just as easily be outsourced to countries without the same economic regulations and worker protections. Between Reagan and the 90s, the American labor movement was essentially dead for the next generation. One example, however, of the potential good that can come from increasing connection is the global environmentalist movement in the 1990s. After scientists discovered a hole in the ozone layer in the 80s, the U.S. and other nations agreed to phase out CFCs and other chemicals that were identified as contributing to the problem. Warnings about global warming became more mainstream by the 90s, with scientists pointing to CO2 emissions from factories and power plants. Basically, by the 1990s, it was becoming clear that climate change, or global warming as we called it at the time, was being caused, or at least rapidly sped up, by human activity. I want to note right here that my U.S. history textbook, sanctioned for the state of Texas, includes the phrase after this, quote, but others disagreed. Like, scientists seemed to determine that global warming was caused by people, but others disagreed. Of course they did. Just to be clear, even back in the 90s, 99.9% .9 of scientists agreed that global warming was occurring as a result of human activity, period. The trick was that these warnings were coming right at a moment of globalization and deregulation and the triumph of free market capitalism over socialism. It's really bad timing for people trying to argue that governments need to step in and direct resources toward an effort that would cut into private profits. In 1997, 192 countries signed the Kyoto Protocol, agreeing to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. President Clinton signed the treaty, but, hearkening back to Woodrow Wilson and the League of Nations, the Senate refused to ratify the treaty, arguing it could reduce the independence of the U.S. economy. Okay, so throughout the 1990s, the world is changing rapidly. The U.S. is on top, and we kind of don't know what to do with ourselves. It could be the most exciting or most confusing time to be president. So let's see how Bill approached the job. Check the mic and make sure it sound right, boys. Act two, President Clinton. There's a lot we could talk about with Bill Clinton. Like, he's a character. But I kind of want to focus on what I think he represents in U.S. history. If Reagan didn't convince you, then the presidency of Bill Clinton is proof that the liberal age of the 1930s to the 70s is over. Because even a young, dynamic, baby boomer Democrat in office is going to spend eight years getting dragged into the middle by a more united conservative movement. He famously said in 1996 that, quote, the era of big government is over. I mean, of course, that's never true, right? The size of the government has stayed the same or grown under every president since FDR. In many ways, Clinton is the liberal Richard Nixon. Like, give me a second. I'm not even talking about the impeachment scandal overlying in office. We'll get there in a minute. But Nixon had a strategy to grab white Southern Democrats and bring them over to the Republican Party by talking about law and order and stoking fear over the rapidly changing, chaotic late 1960s. Similarly, Clinton had to figure out a way to bring some of the conservative moderates back over to his party, and he did it through a strategy called triangulation. Basically, he was going to campaign against conservative policies while actually co-opting some of their ideas and incorporating them into a more moderate version of what they want. You can call this compromise, which it is, but it's also a sign that the Democrats have become the party that needs to grab voters and appeal to moderation, whereas for much of the 20th century, it was the Republicans trying to pick at the edges of the New Deal voter base. How the tables have turned. 
A good example of this would be the Welfare Reform Act of 1996. The Clinton administration replaced the existing program, which gave money directly to mothers in poverty, in favor of block grants given to the states. These came with more strings attached. States would dole out the money as they saw fit, and families in poverty had to do more to prove that they were in need. This act was celebrated as a bipartisan victory while gutting a traditional liberal program and replacing it with a more capitalist-oriented states' rights version. Similarly, Clinton tried to outright end the ban on gays and lesbians in the military. This would have been a huge civil rights victory in the vein of LBJ, right? But instead, he was forced to accept the don't ask, don't tell compromise. Basically, you can be gay in the military as long as no one knows about it. I mean, it was a tiny baby step forward, but with a stronger liberal coalition like in previous eras, it could have been a massive leap. Clinton was still definitely a liberal Democrat. He raised taxes on middle and upper incomes, implemented new taxes on gas, oil, and the natural gas, all with the goal of balancing the budget. Now, this was a smart tactic, right? The economy is booming thanks to the rise of the internet, and Republicans have staked a lot of their popularity on being fiscally conservative. By the last few years of his presidency, the U.S. had a budget surplus, something we hadn't seen since 1970 and haven't seen since. Now, how much of this success was due to Clinton's policies and how much is just because the economy was experiencing a sea change of new opportunities that we hadn't seen since World War II? As always, it's probably both. But a strong economy throughout the 90s allowed Clinton to weather storms and beat back an increasingly powerful Republican Congress. More on that in a second. Unfortunately, his first lady didn't have quite the same luck. Now, Hillary Clinton was not a typical first lady. With her own Yale Law degree and decades of professional experience, she was not going to be a Nancy Reagan telling kids to just say no and redecorating the White House. She's not even going to be a Michelle Obama doing push-ups on The Tonight Show and putting more vegetables in school lunches. No. Hillary wanted to overhaul our healthcare system. By the 1990s, the U.S. was the last industrialized nation without some kind of universal healthcare system. 40 million people just didn't have health insurance at all. Bill Clinton assembled a task force to look into this and recommend policies, and he appointed his wife as head of that task force. Okay, we have a very different understanding of Hillary Clinton in 2023 than we did in the 1990s, and regardless of what you think about her politics, we all now know that she is incredibly smart and incredibly capable in her own right. But I think we can understand how this seemed to the public at the time. His wife? Why is his wife heading up this incredibly important task force? This is pure nepotism. What does she know about healthcare and politics? Basically, if you've seen the Parks and Rec episode where Leslie is criticized for not participating in the candidate's wives' traditional pie competition, yeah, that's pretty much exactly how Hillary was seen, except like on an international scale. And to be fair, the plan that the task force came up with was not great. It would have put most of the burden of paying for health benefits on employers, which is a hard sell to small business owners. And there was a ton of opposition from insurance companies and doctors organizations. They also just had a hard time explaining it to the public and the plan never even came to a vote. Now it's clear by now how incredibly complicated and contentious this discussion is even today. And it seems to be an early sign of Hillary Clinton being both incredibly smart and capable, while also somewhat oblivious to the importance of public perception, right? Like, really? You picked arguably the most difficult problem that will have a direct impact on every single American's life in some way as your foray into political life? I don't know. Okay, before we move into the bigger culture wars of the 1990s, let's highlight some of the accomplishments of the Clinton era. Congress passed the Family Medical Leave Act that gave 12 weeks of leave, unpaid, for the birth or adoption of a child or for a family illness. 
As a consolation after the failure of the healthcare overhaul, the administration created CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program, which made sure children could still get healthcare coverage even if their parents can't afford it. They also established a $500 child tax credit. They banned cigarette advertising aimed at children. They increased student grants and expanded Head Start for disadvantaged preschoolers. Amazingly, Congress also passed the Brady Bill that established a waiting period and criminal background checks for purchasing handguns. The government also outright banned 19 different kinds of assault weapons. Unfortunately, that law was scheduled to sunset in 2004 and it wasn't renewed. One of the reasons why the country seemed to briefly come together for some gun control reform is because we had all recently witnessed a few incredibly dramatic and violent showdowns between law enforcement and heavily armed citizens. Between Ruby Ridge in 1992 and the Waco siege in 1993, the country seemed to agree that these weren't the types of well-regulated militias the founders had in mind. Now, hindsight is a really tricky thing because I can now look at the rise of white supremacist and or violent pseudo-Christian groups and wonder how we were all so surprised when something like January 6th happened, right? In 1995, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols, both former U.S. Army soldiers, committed the most violent act of domestic terrorism in U.S. history. The Oklahoma City bombing killed 168 people and injured 500 more as some sort of punishment for what they saw as government overreach in responding to Ruby Ridge and Waco. These were survivalist, anti-government men who saw big government as the enemy. They were also often white supremacists reacting to the quickly changing and increasingly multicultural country that seemed to be leaving them behind. We really should have been paying more attention. Now, the assault weapons ban was part of a larger Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, sometimes just called the Crime Bill of 1994. It is the largest crime bill in U.S. history and is possibly the best example of the Democrats' move toward the center. Clearly, 25 years of rhetoric around the need for law and order and a war on drugs had permeated the public discourse so much that really any politician who wanted to gain mainstream support had to prove they were tough on crime. The crime bill funded new prisons, gave money for 100,000 more police officers, expanded the death penalty, expanded mandatory sentencing for repeat offenders, kind of regardless of individual circumstance, and it reduced the availability of college education in prisons. But it also required states to maintain a registered list of sex offenders, and it authorized the Violence Against Women Act. This act allocated $1.6 billion to prevent and investigate violence specifically against women, increasing penalties for re repeat sex offenders, forcing states to recognize restraining orders issued in other states, and increasing funding for women's shelters. The crime bill is a mixed bag. As with many things in the 1990s, it was celebrated as a bipartisan victory, and only now it's beginning to be reevaluated as maybe the wrong approach to a problem. For example, by the end of the 20th century, the U.S., home to 5% of the world's population, is going to represent 25% of the world's prisoners. Think about that. One out of every four people in prison worldwide is in the United States. And I'm not going to get into the question of to what extent did the tough-on-crime rhetoric and policies actually make our country safer. It's not my area of expertise. But what I can say is that addressing crime seems to be way more complicated than just build more prisons. In terms of foreign policy, well, it's kind of confusing. You're seeing, right? This is the Seinfeld era. It's like a lot of things happening, but also kind of nothing. We don't have a Cold War anymore to simplify our discussions. Were they communist or did they sound like they might maybe one day be similar to communists? Well, they got to go. No, now we have to pave a new path forward, determining American intervention on a case-by-case -case basis, considering all the complexities on the ground. <sighs> it was exhausting. 
I'm being flippant, but it was a real problem, especially for foreign policy experts who now wondered if they were about to be out of a job. Like, State Department behemoths like Francis Fukuyama and Samuel Huntington spent the 90s writing books trying to crystallize some new enemy for the U.S. to focus on. Fukuyama hilariously declared, quote, the end of history. Western liberalism had won. That was it. We were done. While Huntington proposed an epic clash of civilizations between the West and Islam. That book seems more prophetic than it actually was, I promise. Samuel Huntington's Clash of Civilizations is still one of the most commonly assigned readings in undergrad classes, and it's just straight-up xenophobic garbage. Like, if you don't believe me, you should check out the episode on it from another podcast I love, If Books Could Kill. So the foreign policy strategy was hodgepodge? Is that an official term? For example, when a military coup overthrew the Democratic president of Haiti after its literal first Democratic election ever, the U.S. took a similar approach as the first Gulf War. Clinton worked with the U.N. to pressure the new military regime and headed up a multinational military force that returned power to the democratically elected leader. When ethnic tensions overflowed in the former Yugoslavia, now breaking apart after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Clinton again worked alongside our NATO allies to end ethnic cleansing, first in Bosnia and then in Kosovo. But meanwhile, the worst human rights atrocity since the Holocaust was occurring in Rwanda, and we did nothing. Over 800,000 people died in less than a month, and we now know that the U.S. government was aware of some sort of final solution-type plan by the Hutu majority to eliminate the Tutsi minority and other moderates. It begs the question, why didn't the United States, and also no other powerful country, why didn't we do anything? It's easily one of our biggest human rights failures of the last century. Clinton has since admitted that it's his greatest regret by far. The simple, sad answer is that the U.S. and its allies didn't have any sort of strategic interest in Rwanda, like we did in Eastern Europe or Haiti or the Middle East. A brutal civil war in a tiny African country just didn't generate the same global outcry as ethnic cleansing of white people in Yugoslavia, for example. For all the talk of the power of multiculturalism and globalization, white supremacy still permeates our national attitudes about which countries, quote, deserve our help more than others. Clinton's greatest foreign policy win was the Oslo Accords, a 1993 peace agreement between the Israeli prime minister and the leader of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO. This was the first direct agreement between official representatives from Israel and Palestine. They both met at the White House and agreed to a plan for creating some sort of Palestinian government within their territory. While it was a big win for Clinton, it exacerbated violence in the region. Extremists on both sides rejected the plan. Palestinian bombs killed 256 civilians, while right-wing Israeli groups assassinated the Israeli prime minister who agreed to the plan. Future attempts at agreements broke down throughout the rest of the decade because of disagreements over Jerusalem and the West Bank. And for more detail, go check out episode 16 from season one of this podcast. It's all about the modern Middle East, and I talk way more about the recent Israeli-Palestinian history. And finally, in another example of 21st century foreshadowing, terrorist attacks were also on the rise throughout the 90s. In 1993, a group of men connected to Al-Qaeda planted a bomb at the base of the North Tower of the World Trade Center, hoping it would collapse and take the South Tower down with it. The plan failed, although the explosion killed seven people, but it would prove instructional to the lead perpetrator's uncle, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who would go on to be the principal architect of the September 11th attack. In 2000, a suicide attack by al-Qaeda again killed 17 U.S. Navy sailors on board the USS Cole. 
there has been criticism that Clinton and then his successor, George W. Bush, didn't do more to directly respond to the attack on the USS Cole. And somewhat ironically, that's exactly what al-Qaeda's leader, Osama bin Laden, wanted. A 9-11 commission report cited a government source who reported in February 2001, this is before 9-11, after the attack on the USS Cole, quote, Bin Laden complained frequently that the United States had not yet attacked in response to the coal. Bin Laden wanted the United States to attack, and if it did not, he would launch something bigger. It's a good reminder that the entire purpose of a terrorist attack is to, well, invoke terror. And it was the key strategy of Bin Laden to force the U.S. into an aggressive counterattack that would just further strengthen his argument that the United States is an imperialist invader from the West. He didn't get it after the coal, but he'll get exactly what he wants just about one year after its attack. So we've already covered the foreshadowing of a few key developments that we're dealing with today. Increasingly radicalized white militias, a massive expansion of law enforcement and imprisonment, especially impacting communities of color, and periodic attacks by a persistent group out of Afghanistan named Al-Qaeda. There's just one more ingredient for this current problem soup that we need to add in before it's all done. Act three, the culture wars. Potentially the most important development in the 1990s, at least for understanding American society in the 21st century, is the rise of culture war party politics. To be clear, I'm defining culture wars as an era in which large sections of society have polarized disagreements, often represented by the two major political parties, about the basic values, beliefs, and practices that we should move forward with as a country. We saw seeds of this being planted in the 60s and 70s, but even during the conservative golden age of Reagan, they weren't clearly crystallized yet, right? Most of the Reagan-era policies were far more of a compromise than anything we've seen recently. By the 1990s, a few things had happened. The world was seemingly changing at a faster pace than any time in human history. For example, now only 10% of immigrants to the U.S. were coming from Europe, and most of those even were fleeing the collapsed Soviet bloc. Single-parent families became the norm as the divorce rate passed 50%. The LGBTQ community was more visible, partly because of the tragedy of AIDS, and also they were becoming more united and active as a civil rights movement. We also have, by now, the full professionalization of politics. And I'm not going to say that the U.S. government was ever fully about representing the will of the people, but politicians at least used to be better at pretending it was. By the 1990s, the corporatization of society also included politics, with fundraising often taking more precedence than actual governance. The rise of cable TV under Reagan and then its deregulation under Clinton led to lucrative opportunities for political strategists and talking heads to fill our screens with political debates and sometimes made up crises 24 hours a day. Think tanks, first created in the 1980s, were now firmly established and lobbying became a major business in D.C., for example, in 1975, the total revenue of all Washington lobbyists was around $100 million. By 2006, it would be $2.5 billion. The final development that led to our latest round of culture wars is the fact that, frankly, we didn't have a common enemy to rally against for the first time in 60 years or so. 
Think about it. The last time we began to experience a real cultural divide anywhere near the current one was in the Roaring Twenties. The Great War was over, the economy was booming, and society was changing rapidly. Historically disadvantaged groups pushed their way into mainstream society, and mainstream society, frankly, didn't have anything more important to worry about except being terrified about women in short dresses and building Confederate monuments, which reached its highest level of new projects by around 1920, by the way. But then, we as a country got distracted. I mean, united. We had the Great Depression, World War II, the Cold War. Our problems, of course, didn't go away, but politicians on both sides of the aisle had way more pressing and more compelling ways to mobilize their voter base. Vote for us so we can help you keep your home. Vote for us so we can save the world from Nazis. Vote for us so we can protect you from Soviets and Cubans invading your sleepy Colorado town. Of course, eras like the 60s and 70s were far from being a unified moment in American history, but it is true that the culture war was fairly lopsided at that point. Like, the vast majority of Americans were now on the right side of history, you know, arguing that black people were equal and deserved just as much humanity as white people, and that, I don't know, women could do the same stuff as men. So politically, by the 1990s, the Republicans were still the minority party. They had experienced huge victories under Reagan, but they were struggling to maintain their coalition base without him at the head of the party, especially when charismatic Bill Clinton kept taking their moderates away. They were having a hard time using their clout as the party of military strength during possibly the most peaceful moment in the last few centuries of world history. The economy was booming under a Democratic president, so there also wasn't much room to carve out new voters there. Republicans needed a new strategy, and the man for the job was a Georgia representative named Newt. What makes you think she is a witch? Well, she turned me into a Newt. A Newt. Got better. Just to be clear, this has been a common problem for conservatives for the entire 20th century. More Americans have identified as Democrat than Republican under every president since FDR. That's still true today under the Biden administration, except for one blip in the middle of Clinton's presidency in 1995, when 31% of Americans identified as Republicans compared with 30% identifying as Democrats. The rest were independent. That moment was what we called the Republican Revolution, and it has shaped party politics on both sides for the next 30 years. So what happened? Well, Two years into Clinton's presidency, his popularity was fairly low, even though his party controlled both houses of Congress. Like, at that point, he'd really only raised taxes and Hillary had attempted to overhaul health care. The 1994 midterm was a critical moment for Republicans to see if they could maintain their Reagan-era coalition outside the confines of civil rights and or the Cold War. So they came up with a new strategy. Up until this point, Politics, outside of the presidential election and even kind of statewide Senate elections, had been overwhelmingly local, especially for the House of Representatives. And honestly, the House was just seen as like by far the weakest of all the different areas of our government. This is going to change. If you were running for the House, you campaigned based on your unique voter base, regardless of what was doing well in national or even statewide Senate elections. A Democrat running in a rural California district might have a totally different approach and platform to a Democrat running in Manhattan. And similarly, the Republican Party, as really a coalition of moderates, libertarians, and evangelicals, was constantly morphing in local elections to fit the needs of their voters. And partly because of this, the Republicans hadn't controlled the House of Representatives even once over the last 40 years. 
This changed during the 1994 midterm when Republican leaders under Newt Gingrich proposed a new Contract with America. This was an expansive legislative agenda. A lot of it originated by the Heritage Foundation, that think tank, that established a uniform platform for all Republicans running for the House. Basically, they said, it doesn't really matter who's running in your local election. If you want these things, then vote for the Republican. So what did they propose? Lower taxes, welfare reform, tougher anti-crime laws, and a balanced budget. The overall vibe of the contract with America was cut the size of the federal government and eliminate wasteful spending and corrupt politicians. One of their proposals, by the way, was to establish term limits for both the House and the Senate. It's basically an entire legislative platform inspired by Reagan's statement that, quote, government is not the solution to our problem, government is the problem. And it worked. 1994 became the first time that Republicans won a majority in both the House and the Senate in 40 years, right? This unified national strategy and national approach to hundreds of local elections worked. It brought this coalition together and gave them control of the House. To be clear, little of the contract was ultimately passed, but it showed the power in approaching elections as an us-versus-them, zero-sum game. Republicans became a unified minority that would often wield more influence than the scattered liberal majority. Newt Gingrich also pioneered another well-known strategy today, the government shutdown. Those are also incredibly new. Like in 1980, there was a new interpretation of a 19th century law that basically said that if Congress couldn't agree on a new appropriations bill, the government would just automatically shut down, basically stop all non-essential operations until an agreement could be reached. Most people didn't really notice this new interpretation, but Newt did. He recognized that one of Congress's most important jobs each year is approving the budget for the following year. And this had always been a fairly routine process, but Republicans realized that they could essentially veto, kind of, the president by threatening to shut the government down unless he does something that the majority in Congress wanted. Now, I won't get into the details, but essentially over the winter of 1995 to 1996, the budget became a battleground between Clinton's desire to expand social programs and the Republicans' promises in their contract with America to cut government spending. Clinton stood firm, and after two shutdowns totaling 26 days, congressional Republicans gave in and approved Clinton's budget. A few things to note here. This was the longest government shutdown in U.S. history until the 2018-2019 shutdown, which lasted 35 days. And second, the public hated this and clearly punished congressional Republicans. Many experts believe this was a major factor in Clinton fairly easily winning re-election in 1996. But a new political tool had been unlocked. If a party controlled both the House and the Senate, they could use the routine budget process to wield a lot of influence. Noted, said future Tea Party members watching in the wings. So by Clinton's second term, we have most of the ingredients for a culture war. What are we missing? Oh, that's right. A political scandal that could play out on the new battleground of the internet. All right, I could talk about Clinton's impeachment for a long time, but just like with Watergate, I'm going to give you the quick version because you should really just go listen to season two of Slow Burn because it's all about this. And side note, there's also a really great PBS American Experience series all about the Clinton years. And it's really hilarious watching PBS people try to explain the details of the trial and the blue dress without breaking any FCC rules. 
Here's the basic rundown. Congressional Republicans had been looking into the Clintons and possible wrongdoing basically during their whole administration. When he was governor of Arkansas, he and Hillary had made some real estate investments in a company called Whitewater Development, alongside some friends, the McDougals. The real estate venture failed, and later on, the McDougals were under investigation for a lot of their business dealings and potentially making fraudulent loans from their bank. The investigation into the McDougals gave a three-judge panel enough reason to appoint an independent counsel named Kenneth Starr to investigate the Clintons' ties to those bad business deals. Basically, had either of them known about the fraudulent loans propping up the investment and or had Clinton used his position as governor to improve his financial situation? To be clear, multiple investigations have repeatedly cleared the Clintons of any wrongdoing related to Whitewater. But once Ken Starr started poking around the Clintons' finances, he began learning about other claims about the former governor. Quick warning, for the next few minutes, I'm going to be talking about allegations against Bill Clinton and also what happened between Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. I'm not going to go into the details because it's unnecessary, but I will be making some PG-13 references to sexual activity. So just in case you're listening with your kids and would rather not define a few terms today, you can just skip ahead. Jump ahead to 48 minutes, 30 seconds-ish, and you can join us for our regularly scheduled programming. Okay, so Kenneth Starr is investigating Clinton's finances, but he starts learning about other allegations against Clinton as well. For example, in 1994, a woman named Paula Jones sued the president for sexual harassment a few years earlier when Clinton was governor. So Ken Starr began to broaden his investigation, and it was at this point that he discovered allegations that President Clinton was maybe currently having an affair with a White House intern. As part of his testimony about the Paula Jones case, the president had then lied under oath when asked about the allegations with the intern. So just like with Watergate, the issue was less about the instigating incident, in this case, the possible sexual harassment of Paula Jones or even the relationship with the White House intern, and more about him lying about these incidents. In Starr's independent investigation, he never found enough evidence that Clinton abused his power as president to formally charge Clinton, but House Republicans passed two articles of impeachment, perjury and obstruction of justice, again, for lying under oath about this relationship. The Senate eventually voted along party lines and Clinton was declared not guilty, and the argument boiled down to, was a married man lying about an affair really an impeachable offense? And the Senate decided, no, it wasn't. Now, you might notice that up to this point, I haven't even mentioned anything about the White House intern, and that's on purpose. Her name is Monica Lewinsky, and she became the face of all of Clinton's wrongdoing, I think really unfairly. I really don't like when people refer to this scandal, for example, as the Monica Lewinsky scandal. It's Bill Clinton's impeachment. Her name became synonymous with inappropriate sexual behavior, and her life was essentially ruined until very recently, when society has decided to reevaluate how we handle allegations of sexual misconduct. Now, here are a few things that you really need to know about Monica Lewinsky. Most importantly, by far, is that she was 22. She was a 22-year-old intern who genuinely fell in love with the President of the United States, who turned 50 during their almost two-year relationship. Did they both make mistakes? Oh, definitely. But I would argue that more of the blame should fall on a fully grown married man who also happens to be the most powerful person on the planet, more than a young recent college grad whose prefrontal cortex hasn't even been fully formed yet. And another thing to know about this situation was that this relationship was consensual. 
Bill Clinton has had many allegations of sexual harassment littering his biography, but this is not one of them. This was just a guy cheating on his wife with a young woman from work. And that guy just happened to be the president, and his wife just happened to be First Lady Hillary Clinton. And as usually happens, the women in this situation bore the brunt of the abuse. Monica Lewinsky's face was splashed all over newspapers and blogs. Like, she really is patient zero for online bullying and harassment. This was sort of the first big internet scandal. That's also an issue that she has now dedicated her life to talking about. I highly recommend Monica Lewinsky's recent TED Talk. Everyone was calling her fat or ugly. They made fun of her clothes, all with the punchline of like, really, Bill wanted to sleep with her? It was awful. Meanwhile, Hillary was forced to stand by her man while he hemmed and hawed and lied his way through the whole ordeal. Like, instead of owning up to his mistakes, Bill was getting into these rhetorical debates with questioners about what constitutes sexual relations. For example, if receiving oral sex isn't technically sexual relations, then technically Bill didn't lie when he said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Come on, Bill. Like, they put Monica Lewinsky's blue dress up as evidence, complete with a semen stain belonging to the president. It was humiliating. And of course, in the end, the event is often just known as the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Her name became Watergate. Again, she was in the wrong. She cheated with a married man. But Clinton was declared not guilty and still got to be president of the United States while she had to basically go into hiding for 20 years while she waited for society to catch up and realized that, I don't know, maybe we hadn't as a society handled that whole situation quite right. As for Hillary, she in some ways paid for Bill's mistakes for the rest of her career. In the very first presidential debate between candidates Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, Trump invited all of Bill Clinton's accusers as his personal guests. The women who claimed Bill sexually harassed or assaulted them sat in the front row as some sort of punishment for Hillary, not Bill. Again, was Hillary completely unproblematic? Definitely not. She probably overstepped in her role as first lady, and I don't think she did enough, at least in my opinion, to acknowledge the women who claimed to be wronged by her husband. And there are many things that you cannot like about Hillary Clinton's career, but her husband's impeachment shouldn't be one of them. Okay, by 1999, Clinton had bounced back. He had an approval rating higher than any president leaving office since Harry Truman. The budget was balanced, the world was at peace, mostly, and he had successfully fended off congressional Republicans' attempts to knock him off his high horse for eight years. The new millennium was approaching, and without an incumbent, the 2000 election would be a great opportunity to reset and see where the country stood along party lines. Maybe, if the results were clear enough, the country could unite and move past its burgeoning culture war and into a new millennium without epic global conflicts and political partisanship. The last thing this country needs is a divisive election and a new war. Fingers crossed 2000 and 2001 are going to be super calm and boring. To be continued. Thanks for listening. If you want to support this podcast, go join patreon.com slash antisocial studies or just share and recommend this podcast to all of your friends and go follow me on Instagram and TikTok at antisocial studies. <laughs> <laughs>